Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting May 3rd. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on a special edition of the podcast, we'll talk with Nobel Prize winning MIT physicist Frank Wilczek and his wife, Betsy Devine. And then we'll squeeze in a quick round of our science quiz. Frank Wilczek shared the 2004 Physics Nobel with David Gross and David Politzer for their work explaining the strong force that holds atomic nuclei together. It was a key step in the search for a grand unified theory of everything. Frank has a new book out, which Betsy contributed to. I caught up with them at a party celebrating the publication of the book at their editor's house in Brooklyn. We retreated to a fairly quiet room, but you'll still get a taste of New York life in the background, helicopters sirens, cell phones, and some kitchen clattering. In this first part of the interview, we talked about the book and what it's like to get a call from Stockholm at 5.30 in the morning. Frank Wilczek and Betsy Devine, thank you very much for talking to me today. I'm tempted to begin the interview this way. Why are all electrons the same? <laughs> well, that's the most profound thing we learn from quantum field theory. That's something you can't understand without combining uh, special relativity and quantum mechanics and the only way we know how to into a, something called quantum field theory. So it's really something that's only been understood properly in the last part of the 20th century. And the reason I ask that is it's in your book. You have a new book out called Fantastic Realities, 40 mind, 49 Mind Journeys and a Trip to Stockholm. And Betsy Devine is your wife, yes. Frank Wilczek's wife. And I took your advice. In the introduction, you said, read Betsy's section of the book first. I would. So I did. So let me let me start with you at this point. Right. I'd like you to tell the story of what happened on that October day in 2004 at 5.30 in the morning when the call came in from Stockholm, where you were and where he was and what you did. Okay, sure. Well, that was a very, uh, that morning is certainly etched on my memory. So what happened is uh, uh, the ordinary thing is that at five in the morning, everyone's asleep in our house. But this morning, Frank was restless. He'd gotten up. He was in the shower. And I had registered that, but I was still asleep. And then the phone rang. And I thought, the kinds of thoughts you think when your phone rings at five in the morning. But then I thought, wait a minute. This is the morning they announced the Nobel Prizes. So I went and I answered the phone, and it was the woman. I admitted I was in the bathroom saying to Frank, Frank, there's a woman on the phone who wants to talk to you. Because he was in the shower. He was in the shower. And uh, she has a beautiful Swedish accent. <laughs> she has a Swedish accent. He stepped out of the shower, and I. And we were both in shock. I put the cell phone into his dripping hand. And he put it to his ear, and uh, he said, yes, yes. <laughs> and then he gave me the thumbs up, which you guys can't see. So that was really fun. Meaning, thumbs up, you know, it's it's good news. Right. They have called to tell you you've won the Nobel Prize in physics. Exactly, exactly. Now, he's dripping wet. Yes. So a little time goes by, and finally... So I, yeah, so... Neither of us was probably thinking at our finest at that point. So I wanted to run in the kitchen and hear on the other phone. 
But so I did that. But then after a few minutes, my conscience smote me, and I thought, "Wait, Frank is in the bathroom with nothing on. He's completely <laughs> wet and dripping." And I went running back in to see if he'd picked up a towel, which he had not. So mm-hmm. I grabbed his bathrobe, tried to get it around <laughs> his shoulders. I had thought it would be, um, "Hello, you've won the Nobel Prize. Goodbye." But it wasn't that way at all. It was uh, a long series of people wanting to talk. Friends from Sweden, uh, uh, dignitaries, all wanted to congratulate. Uh, so not realizing that you might be standing there just coming out of the shower. Oh no, I don't think it. I don't think that entered into their considerations at all. But uh, it didn't bother me at all. <laughs> I you had waited a while for the Nobel Prize. Well, I had thought there were significant chances for about 20 years because the work was clearly important. And this was what done in the 70s. The initial, yeah, the big breakthrough was in the early 70s. And uh, by the early 80s, I would say the evidence was pretty solid. Uh, so it was a possibility. And, and uh, on the other hand, there was... Uh, a, our work was based in part on uh, preceding theoretical work, especially by Hooft and Veltman. So I thought uh, probably that would be the order. They would get it first, and then we might. Uh, and uh, they got it in 1998, I believe. So after, once that happened, I really thought it was imminent. And uh, yeah. Let me ask you, in the book, mm-hmm. something you wrote... You, you, you were talking about reading Einstein's uh, general relativity in 1915. Well, no, I didn't read it. Well, not <laughs> you didn't read it in 1915. No. You wrote it in 1915. Right. And you were talking about being impressed, and I was expecting oh, by yes. Einstein's intellect, by his, his his findings. No, you were impressed by his style. Yes. Talk, talk about that for a minute. Well, that's yeah. I was really impressed by his style. This I read that uh, first in a fairly serious way when I was in college. Uh, and this great paper of 1915 starts with a long, well, the whole paper is fairly short, uh, first of all, but it starts with, uh, about, uh, out of a paper that's maybe 15 text pages long, uh, five pages of just words, sort of philosophical discussion about, uh, relative motion and the impossibility of defining relative motion uh, and if uh, this thought experiment that if you had a ball over here and another one over there and nothing else and one was rotating the rotating one would feel a centrifugal force according to the received laws of physics so it would get distorted but that's ridiculous because you could have considered the other one to be rotating and okay so that so then then the then the philosophical discussion stops <laughs> then there, there's another five pages, which is sort of exposition of the mathematics of curved space spaces and uh, Riemannian geometry and tensors. And then, uh, then in five, the last five pages, he writes down general relativity, writes down the, the as we know it, and, and, the, and the classic tests. Uh, so I was just amazed, uh, and I, I didn't understand things very well at that point. Uh, I was just—I didn't see the connections between the philosophical discussion and what came afterwards. Uh, 
that I was so I was really uh, blown away because I thought by 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 these philosophical considerations, sort of as a as a bagatelle, he was just able to write down this uh, most beautiful and maybe most profound of physical theories. Great but, stuff. But later, <laughs> later, when I did understand it, I learned that the first part is actually contradicted by the later parts. Yes. <laughs> and at that point in the book, you well, that's a real genius. <laughs> More with Frank Wilczek right after this. Want to share some thoughts about the podcast? Let us know what you think by participating in our survey at www.siam.com slash research. Back to the interview. In this segment, we talk about his Nobel Prize winning research and the future of physics. Let's talk about the work a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, for our general listenership. Yeah. There are four uh, fundamental forces of nature that, in, in, uh, that we use in current theory of, of physics. There's gravity and electromagnetism which uh, have been known for a long time. And we have beautiful theories of those, general relativity for gravity and uh, uh, what's called quantum electrodynamics for uh, electromagnetism. With Both have very beautiful uh, equations and deep, profound theoretical principles behind them. And then, uh, early in the 20th century, when physicists started to study uh, interiors of atoms, they found that uh, two new kinds of forces were needed. Uh, one is called the weak force, and that's responsible for uh, various kinds of radioactivity. The other is called the strong force. The strong force is the basic force that holds atomic nuclei together. You know, and the atomic nucleus, of course, contains a protons and neutrons and electric forces in fact would want to blow it apart the protons uh, would want to repel each other the protons want to repel each other the neutrons don't care <laughs> they're neutral um, and yet there had to, but there had to be something that's holding them together and this was just called the strong force but not understood uh, then by a long series of difficult and ingenious investigations uh, various facts were learned about the strong force. This whole subject of nuclear physics is about the strong force. But there was no beautiful theory or, or complete theory you know, worthy of standing beside uh, general relativity or uh, uh, Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism and, and its descendants in quantum theory. So that's what we found. We found the basic theory of the strong interaction uh, using the notion of quarks, but also a very specific notion of the glue that holds them together, the so-called gluons. So we really provided a concrete picture, well, not concrete, uh, concrete equations for what the gluons are and how they interact. Uh, and the answer was uh, much more than we could have expected, in a sense, because it turns out that that theory uh, is mathematically, in its concepts, a grand generalization of electrodynamics. It's based on so-called gauge symmetry, which suggests ways to unify the different interactions. Uh, also, this fundamental property of asymptotic freedom, which was the key to uh, unlocking the secret of the strong interaction, says that uh, the interactions get simpler. Interactions between quarks and gluons get simpler at high energies. And that's like a gift, because if we want to study 
fundamental physics at higher energies or cosmology. It means things simplify and we can see through it. So it opened a new window into both unification and the early universe, as well as uh, telling us what the fundamental force holding together atomic nuclei is. The, the tough the tough situation in which to try to reason things out is everyday existence. It's at these super high energies when things get simpler. That's right. <laughs> at low energies, the only way we know how to, for instance, uh, calculate the internal structure of protons based on the more fundamental description of uh, quarks and gluons relies on massive uh, numerical work to solve the uh, equations. In fact, it's continues to push the frontiers of computer science with massively parallel uh, com computers. I like to say that uh, these computers operate at teraflop speed, so they do uh, 10 to the 12, the trillion multiplications of big numbers per second operate for months at a time, so 10 to the 7 seconds, and they consist of about 10 to the 30th protons and neutrons. And what they're desperately trying to do with all that effort is uh, compute what protons figure out every 10 to the minus 24 seconds, every one of them, which is how to balance the quarks and gluons into a combined state. Uh, we, our, our methods of calculation probably could use improvement, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the answer uh, justifies the effort we really do uh, understand through these calculations what protons are and how their mass arises in terms of more basic notions. Which is really exciting because yeah. I'm sure most of the people listening and and for me, the proton was one of the things we were given right. to learn <laughs> and then you work with that. But the work you've done explains why the proton right. is what it right. is. As physicists in, 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 in the very early times of the when uh, nuclear physics was young in the 1930s or so, uh, people anticipated that protons and neutrons would be elementary particles, that, which means that they would obey simple equations. But as things were investigated more fully, it was found that they don't. They don't. <laughs> the interactions between them are very, very complicated. And not only that, but when you dump energy into a proton, it tends to break apart into other new objects, other kinds of particles, so it's not at all that uh, resemble protons. In fact, a single proton, if you put energy into it, could break up into three protons and two antiprotons, so it's not... Uh, so that it, it uh, was very... It, was, it became clear that it was wrong to think of protons as basic particles. They don't obey simple equations. Uh, and eventually it emerged that it's these quarks and gluons that are based simple equations. And the quarks have properties parallel to properties of electrons. The gluons have properties parallel to the properties of photons. And that's why it also makes a hint of unification. We have uh, the Large Hadron Collider coming online yes. soon. Yes, And I'm, a lot of the people listening have probably heard of string theory or super string theory, mm -hmm. and that's gotten a lot of attention. Yes. I know that you're uh, you're a big fan of supersymmetry yes. rather than or in addition to string theory. Yes. And uh, 
one of the great things about the Large Hadron Collider, if I understand right, is that we'll have energies high enough where we might see some of the predictions of supersymmetry. Yes, supersymmetry is uh, not inconsistent with string theory, but it's really a separate idea. And uh, I'm a firm believer in Occam's razor that you should try to use the minimal hypotheses. Uh, well, or in any case, it's it's a good strategy to, to uh, check out your minimal hypotheses before building further hypotheses. So uh, supersymmetry is a would be a big step in the understanding of nature. And the reason I'm optimistic that the LHC uh, will turn up supersymmetry is based on these unification ideas because uh, many things about unification work beautifully if you try to make the strong and electromagnetic and weak interactions into a unified structure uh, based on the color charges of the strong interaction being different versions of electric charges if you like and the photons really being different versions of gluons uh, I won't try to be precise about this, but but and, and a lot of things work out beautifully. You do find uh, consistency with the charges and properties of the particles we know if you carry out this unification, and that's not at all automatic. So it explains things that we know uh, that can't be explained otherwise. But uh, superficially, there appears to be a s terrible problem with unification, which is that the strength of the coupling of photons is different from the strength of the coupling of the colored gluons. There's a reason why the strong interaction is called strong and the electromagnetic interaction isn't called strong. <laughs> and that's the same reason why atomic nuclei, which are held together by the gluons, are much smaller and more compact than atoms, which are held together by the photons, by the electromagnetic force. Uh, however, the lesson of asymptotic... So, so that appears to be a terrible problem with unification. It sort of stops it right off the bat. Can you but, explain unification real quick for everybody? Yeah, so uh, I, as I uh, keep emphasizing, the, 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 the theory of the strong force we developed uh, is a grand generalization of the theory of electromagnetism. So electromagnetism is based on the way photons sense and respond to a property called electron electric charge. That's the central notion of uh, electromagnetism. The theory of the strong force, quantum chromodynamics, or QCD, uh, involves three different kinds of charges which we call colors, but they're not, of course, the color of anything. They're more like different charges, uh, but they're not electric charge. They're just intrinsically new kinds of charge. Uh, now, the theory becomes much more complicated if there are three kinds of charges. Uh, you need eight kinds of gluons because now you can not only sense the different charges, but change some into others to make the good. So to make the theory mathematically perfect, you need eight gluons instead of one photon. But the mathematical structure is very suggestive that they are different facets of the same bigger theory, which would involve all four kinds of charges in a unified description. So all of them would be on the same footing. And the weak interaction, which I didn't talk about, is also similar. It's even more suggestive. There are two other 
kinds of colors associated with the weak interaction. So with this is this is begging you, <laughs> begging you to make a unified theory where all the charges are on the same footing. Uh, and uh, how do you then, know the universe is that way? Well, we don't. <laughs> so we try to we try to check we try to find consequences of that idea, uh, and uh, and then see if they're true in the world. Right. I mean. Uh, Karl Popper was very fond of this idea that the, the the goal of science was to falsify theories, and that's that's much too simple. I think uh, the way we operate is is in a way closer to the opposite. Although what we really try to do is truthify our theories, find ways in which they might be true. Uh, of course, one of the ways to, that's most convincing to show that your theory might it might be true is to show that it has consequences that could have been wrong but happened to be right. So that that's, that makes contact with falsifying. But truthifying, I think, is a much more important idea. <coughs> anyway, in this case, uh, if you try to, so if you want to put these guys all on the same footing, the different charges, they should have the same power, roughly. So the interaction strength should be the same, but it's not, as I said. Uh, however, one of the, though we we don't let that stop us. So <laughs> one of the lessons that uh, you learn from asymptotic freedom, in fact, the essence of asymptotic freedom, is that uh, what we call empty space, what we see as empty space, is not at all uh, an inert void. It contains quantum fluctuations of all kinds. And those quantum fluctuations condition the prob properties of the particles we see. So if we look at a charge from a distance, uh, we see it in a distorted way through this medium. And if we look closer, it might have a different power than what it appeared when we look further away. And in the case of QCD, the, the asymptotic freedom mathematically is the statement that if you look closer and closer to a color charge, it looks weaker and weaker. It has less and less effect. Uh, you can do similar kinds of corrections for the dynamics of uh, quantum fluctuations in, in, in the void and empty space uh, for the weak and strong inter and, and electromagnetic interactions and see if when you strip away the effect of the distorting medium uh, and go to the, the core, you know, the really small distances, whether, whether they have the same strength. And it turns out that almost works if, yeah. you, if you use the particles we know about. Almost works. So Popper would say, give up. You falsify the theory. But no, we, we try to truthify the theory. And supersymmetry. Uh, super yeah, supersymmetry. If you want to implement this idea of supersymmetry, which is very attractive in many ways, uh, it, it's another way of unifying the description of physics. Uh, the idea of unifying the charges kind of brings to fruition the idea that photons and gluons are different aspects of the same reality. But it does not touch the other contrast between electrons and photons or quarks and gluons and the other. So it makes the electrons similar to the quarks and the photons similar to the gluons, but it doesn't, it, but it still leaves you with two separate things. Supersymmetry unifies things in the other direction. Mm -hmm. so, uh, but it requires changing the equations from 
things we know about securely. And when you change the equations, you find out that if you want supersymmetry, you have to have extra particles. Those extra particles also are, ha have quantum fluctuations in empty space, and so they change the calculation, mm -hmm. they change the medium, they change the corrections you have to make. And if you make those corrections, then it works. Then they really do unify. So what I think, what I hope, <laughs> is that uh, that the uh, those particles really do exist, that LHC will find them, and then we'll have evidence for both kinds of unification. <laughs> Sounds very so, exciting in the coming years. Yeah, I think it, it well, unless nature is playing a cruel joke on us, uh, I think uh, it's going to be uh, exciting. Because although that that broad picture I outlined to you, I, uh, I would be very disappointed if it's not verified and... That'll be very exciting, but uh, I, I've been expecting that for twenty more, twenty or more years. <laughs> the uh, but we'll also learn essentially new things uh, because the details of how supersymmetry, supersymmetry is certainly not precisely exact in the world. There, it's not true that electrons have the same mass as photons and so forth. Uh, so, but. Uh, there are lots of ideas for how it might be broken. None of them looks really absolutely compelling, but they will tell us possibly about uh, new aspects of gravity, possibly about extra dimensions, possibly about string theory, possibly about new kinds of colors and interactions. We just don't know what it's going to be, so, and so we'll we'll be opening a whole new world. Five or six years from now, physics could be a whole new ball. I think fundamental physics will be a much richer subject. In closing, could you read something from the book? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy I, to. I was hoping you'd read this section right here. Okay, this is uh, The Greatest Lesson, which was the uh, last part of my uh, acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize. So, Evidently, asymptotic freedom besides resolving the paradoxes that originally concerned us, provides a conceptual foundation for several major insights into nature's fundamental workings and a versatile instrument for further investigation. The greatest lesson, however, is a moral and philosophical one. It is truly awesome to discover, by example, that we humans can come to comprehend nature's deepest principles, even when they are hidden in remote and alien realms. Our minds were not created for this task, nor were appropriate tools ready at hand. Understanding was achieved through a vast international effort involving thousands of people working hard for decades, competing in the small but cooperating in the large, abiding by rules of openness and honesty. Using these methods, which do not come to us effortlessly but require nurture and vigilance, we can accomplish wonders. Frank Wilczek's book is called Fantastic Realities, 49 Mind Journeys and a Trip to Stockholm. It's from World Scientific Publishing. And Betsy Devine keeps a great blog of their adventures, and it's amazingly easy to find. If you Google just her first name, Betsy, you'll find it probably as the fourth listing on page one. We'll be right back. Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis. Think what's possible. 
Okay, let's get in a quick round of Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. At Frank Wilczek's MIT, students celebrate drop date, the last day to drop a class, by dropping a piano off the top of a building. Story two. From pianos to organs. A researcher claims that TV shows featuring a black market for body organs or doctors prematurely declaring death to harvest organs are scaring people from donating. Donating organs. Story three: From organs to Morgans. Genetic analysis at the University of Vermont has revealed that the breed of horse called the Morgan horse is distinct from other horse breeds due to a gene duplication that provides the animal with unusually high levels of myoglobin, which leads to superoxygenated muscle tissue. And story four: From horses to horse flies, kinda. Berkeley researchers have created a device that mimics an insect's eye with about nine thousand individual tiny lenses, providing a panoramic view. Those are your four stories, and your time is up. Story four is true. Berkeley researchers created an epoxy resin artificial. Compound lens device. The panoramic view it offers could make it popular for hidden cameras or medical scopes in the future. You can read David Biello's story on the eye on our website www.siam.com. Story one is true. MIT students revived an old tradition this year and dropped a piano off a seven-story building to celebrate the last day you could officially drop a class. As one commentator noted, they won't let you drink at MIT, but you can push a piano off a roof. There's video up at baker.mit.edu/piano. Story two is true. A Purdue researcher says many people believe that what they see on TV is real, and that plot lines involving organ thefts keep people from being donors. She wants writers and producers to stop such stories. Or we could have an educated populace that does not think that everything on TV is real. Yeah, you better work on the writers and producers. Which means that story three about the extra myoglobin genes in Morgan horses is totally bogus. Although what is true is that myoglobin, which stores oxygen in muscles, and hemoglobin, which carries oxygen in the blood, probably exist because of the duplication of some ancient globin gene. After the duplication, the two genes were free to mutate into their current roles. We'll be right back. Enjoy a free preview issue of Scientific American magazine plus a gift. Visit www.siam.com today. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.